morning. Great to be with you this morning. Let me invite you to grab a Bible, would you, and open it to the Gospel of Matthew. And it's a privilege to welcome you to this Advent season, this time of year in the life of our church. And we are going to be, during this Advent season, looking at the Gospel of Matthew, the first two chapters, actually, in the book of Matthew. So turn there to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to uh, take the next four weeks of Advent and look at the first two chapters of the book of Matthew and at the birth and the sending of Jesus into the world. But the good news is we're not going to stop with the book of Matthew when Advent stops or ceases. We're going to continue on with the book of Matthew through the winter into the spring, in fact, even into the early summer. So we're going to be tracking with the story and the life of Jesus, beginning now with Advent in his birth all the way through to his resurrection, Matthew 28, sometime at the end of June probably. But we'll look forward to diving into Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Is everybody there in a Bible, Matthew chapter 1? Let me invite you to stand and let me read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the genealogy of Jesus. There's a lot of complicated names in this genealogy. I've had a head cold all week, so if I stumble over some of these names, we'll just attribute it, can we, to my head cold, all right? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. Maybe see it. So let me begin this morning's message, just having read Matthew's genealogy, this genealogy of Jesus, with a fairly straightforward basic question. It's this, 
Why does Matthew begin his magnificent gospel story about Jesus with what looks like a fairly boring genealogy? I mean, why is that? It would be like beginning a blockbuster movie with the credits. Some of you I know are looking forward to the new Star Wars movie that's coming out. Come on, there's more than three of you in the room. I mean, just imagine you show up at a Star Wars, you've got like your extra large bucket of popcorn, right? And then you're handing out to some friends, you got your Diet Coke, and you've got some Skittles to wash down the buttered popcorn when you get sick with that, right? You got whole deals going. And then that slanted paragraph starts for Star Wars, you know, it kind of drifts off into the distance, that slanted paragraph. And then like the Death Star comes in and the music and the whole deal, you know that whole deal? I mean, just imagine if you show up there and you got your popcorn, your Skittles, the whole thing, and they roll five minutes of credits. Like a long list of boring names to get the thing started. Names you've never heard of. You know they're probably legally important, but you're not exactly sure why they're there. They're necessary, perhaps, but not very inspiring. Why begin this way? Why does Matthew begin this way? Or let me ask a maybe even more interesting question. Why does Matthew begin with this genealogy? Like, why does he highlight the particular names and people that he highlights? Why mention some of these names and not some other names that are also included in Jesus' genealogy? You may be saying, because they're in Jesus' genealogy, but you know as well as I do that we can trace our family lineage through different branches on the tree. There's a selectivity, I'm saying, to the way Matthew's gone about it. There's some intentionality to the names he's, names he's chosen to highlight in Jesus' family tree. What am I getting at? I'm getting at this, that if you look more closely at who Matthew's included in this genealogy, it's almost as though he's trying to put the birth of Jesus in a bad light because of the names he's highlighted. What do I mean? Well, there are over 40 names in this genealogy, and let me put it this way, there aren't a lot of Mother Teresas and Billy Grahams in this genealogy. And I don't mean because there aren't any famous people in the genealogy, I mean because most of the people in genealogy wouldn't qualify as very virtuous people. People whose lives go, let's call it, in a straight line. No, there are a bunch of crooked lines in this genealogy. In fact, it's as though Matthew scoured through the genealogy lists in the Old Testament looking for some of the most unsavory characters to highlight as he describes Jesus' family tree. Why would he do that? Biblical scholar Raymond Brown wrote a classic book, a big, big book entitled the birth of the Messiah, and in this big book on the birth of the Messiah, of course, he talks about Matthew's genealogy, and he makes some of the observations I've just made for us. 
that Matthew seems to have been highly selective in, in the names that he includes and the names that he doesn't include and seems to have preferred in the telling of his genealogy, check it out, to highlight the sinners and not just the saints. And so Raymond Brown says this, listen, he says, quote, Matthew's genealogy is telling us that the story of Jesus Christ contains as many sinners as saints and is written with the crooked lines of liars and betrayers and the immoral and not only with the straight lines. Let me show you how this works in Matthew's genealogy. Take a look at verse 2, will you? Take a look at the first three names mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. We call them the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there in verse 2. These are the ones from whom the entire nation of Israel comes. And frankly, there's not a straight line in the whole bunch. Start with Abraham. Abraham started well his life, and he finished well his life. You can read about it, Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 26, with a kind of crowning achievement in Genesis chapter 22. But in Abraham's life, the middle of his life was pretty zigzag, faltering in his faith, struggling at points pretty badly with his faith. Twice, he pawns his wife off on foreign kings in order to save his own neck. And then there's Abraham's son, Isaac. His life didn't exactly amount to a straight line either. And then there's Isaac's son, Jacob, and he had a colossal falling out with his older brother so much so he had to go into exile for many years because of his trickery, and it only ended, he only came out of his exile, his banishment from his family, with a big wrestling match with God, which left him with a permanent limp. And so I don't think Jacob would describe and tell his story as a straight line either. You see, these patriarchs, they were not paragons of virtue. Their lives were, well, their lives were like the rest of our lives. They didn't run in a straight line. They were crooked lines. Do you notice Matthew's genealogy includes not only the patriarchs there in verse 2, but a long list of a bunch of other names, many of whom are Israel's kings. There is a lot of royalty mentioned in this opening genealogy in Matthew's gospel, and I'm sure royalty is on all of our minds now that Prince Harry has been engaged, right? It's on everybody's mind, I'm sure. There's a lot of royalty mentioned in the genealogy, and so surely there's going to be a lot of lines that run lives that run in straight lines rather than crooked lines, because as, as we all know, power tends to engender virtue and character, Right? Take a look at a name that is mentioned several times in Matthew's genealogy, a very well-known name, the consummate king in Israel's history, David, who is paid the highest compliment anyone could be paid in the Old Testament. He is described as a man after God's own heart. And yet David's life was not exactly a straight line, was it? There was deceit. There was abuse of power, there was adultery, there was even murder, not exactly a straight line. 
See, Matthew mentions a number of other kings. Look there, verse 7, you see one of David's sons, Solomon, there mentioned in verse 7. He built the temple. That's quite an accomplishment, but he ended up losing his heart the end of his life. Because as we read in 1 Kings, he was in love with foreign women and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. Matthew also mentions Rehoboam. Look there, verse 7. He was an unmitigated disaster, by the way. 1 Kings 14 tells us the kingdom was split in two because of Rehoboam's sin and rebellion and waywardness. 1 Kings chapter 15 talks about Abijah. He's mentioned in this list as well. He didn't do so well either. Jehoshaphat's mentioned. He did okay, but his son Joram, who Matthew mentions in his genealogy, 2 Kings chapter 8 tells us this. He, quote, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so too did Ahaz, who came after him. Hezekiah, who came after him, he did okay almost a straight line, but Manasseh, who came after Hezekiah, he was a disaster as well. A bunch of kings, a bunch of crooked lines. So much so that you see where all of these kings and their lives that are crooked lines ultimately lead in the story of Israel's own history. Look there, verse 11, after the line of all of these kings, verse 11, where does it all go? To a phrase that seems kind of indescript to our ears, perhaps, but was a blinker for the Israelites and for Jews at the time, the deportation to Babylon, verse 11, that's where this all led. And what's that? That's God's judgment on his people. For their sin, for their rebellion, for their waywardness, for their turning their backs on his covenant grace and promises, that is the exile of the people of Israel to Babylon, the deportation to Babylon. And so Matthew's genealogy, you see, doesn't only have lives that are crooked lines, individual lives. He's got the whole history of Israel as one gigantic zigzag, and he doesn't try to skirt it at all. He could have told the story, Abraham to David to Jesus, isn't it awesome? Check it out, right in the center of the genealogy is the deportation to Babylon, God's judgment on his people. This is a big zigzag line in the history of Israel. Not a straight line, but a crooked line. But I want you to see one other thing that I think is Super fascinating that Matthew does in his genealogy. He didn't need to do this. Luke, in his genealogy, Luke the gospel writer, doesn't do what Matthew does, and it's this. He includes the names of four women, which may not strike us in our 21st century context as all that unique or unusual, but for a first century Jew to include women in a genealogy would have been highly unusual, highly unusual. But more than that, notice the names of the women Matthew chooses to include, not the saintly wives of the patriarchs, which he easily could have done. They were involved in the genealogy of Jesus, of course. I'm thinking here of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. Matthew doesn't include them, and he could have very easily. 
Instead, Matthew, check it out, mentions four women who were very unlikely candidates to be included in the genealogy of Jesus. And why do I say that? For two reasons. First, all four women were ethnic outsiders. They were non-Israelites. They were Gentiles. So to include these non-Israelite Gentiles in Jesus' genealogy, that's super unlikely. More than that, check this out. At least three of these four women, if not all four of the women, depending upon how you read one of their stories, had lives that were, how shall we say it, shrouded in questionable sexual liaisons of one kind or another. There was some deep sexual shame and moral compromise as part of their story. Who are these women that are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy? Well, take a look at verse 3. We see the first one mentioned there, Tamar. Who is she? She was a Canaanite outsider, a non-Israelite, who disguised herself and pretended to be a prostitute to lure her father-in-law, Judah, into a sexual liaison so that she could conceive a child. Not exactly a straight-line story. Or take a look at the second woman woman that's mentioned there in Matthew's genealogy, verse 5, Rahab. She's mentioned there in verse 5. Who was she? She was a Canaanite as well. But she didn't disguise herself as a prostitute. She was, in fact, an actual prostitute. Not a straight-line story. There's a third Canaanite that's mentioned. Her name is Ruth there in verse 5 as well, another ethnic outsider to the genealogy of Jesus. In particular, she's a Moabitess. And then the real coup de grace, check it out, verse 6, is the fourth woman to be mentioned, but she's not mentioned directly as though Matthew's making an extra point with a fourth mention of this woman. She's only referred to... Check it out, verse 6, as the wife of Uriah. Speaking, of course, of Bathsheba. Another Gentile woman. Married to Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba who committed adultery with King David. And so what is Matthew doing here with this list? Patriarchs and kings that are profligates and women that have controversy and scandal shrouding their lives. Some 40 plus names chosen to tell the backstory of Jesus' birth, and there is not hardly a straight line among any of them. Matthew's got more sinners than saints in the genealogy of of Jesus. And even the semi-saintly ones, their lives weren't exactly all that straightforward. Why does Matthew tell Jesus' story this way? I mean, would you tell your story this way? Describing your family tree, you'd talk about your uncle who really abused a bunch of power and murdered somebody? Or your aunt such and so, or your, your grandmother who was a well-known prostitute in the town? Who tells a genealogy that way? And why would you do that? 
Well, evidently, Matthew, in writing his gospel, he doesn't want to waste any time before he starts preaching the gospel. In fact, he begins his gospel with this genealogy because for Matthew, genealogy is gospel. These aren't the boring credits at the end of a blockbuster movie. No, this list of names helps us see the story of God's grace, God's good news as it works its way out in the lives of real people. And so you see, Matthew's genealogy is gospel because we see that crooked lines lead to Christ. That's what we see. Abraham's crooked life, it leads to Christ. Isaac's crooked life, it leads to Christ. Jacob's crooked life, it leads to Christ. David's crooked life, it leads to Christ. Tamar's crooked life, it leads to Christ. Rahab's crooked life, it leads to Christ. Ruth's crooked life, it leads to Christ. Bathsheba's crooked life, it leads to Christ. Your crooked life, my crooked life, they can lead to Christ. This is the gospel news in the opening of Matthew's gospel, that crooked lines can lead to Christ. Of course, none of the people mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, and none of us in this room this morning wanted to begin our life by writing the story of our life with crooked lines. No doubt all of us began our lives wanting to write our lives with a bunch of straight lines and straight lines only. And yet, as we all recognize, something inevitably happens along the way as we get going in our life. Some way where along the way we look back on our life and we see that our life that we were hoping was going to be a straight line is full of zigzags and twists and turns. It is a crooked line our life has become. Through circumstances we didn't anticipate, for some of us through forces that we felt like were beyond our control, for probably all of us. Decisions that we made, tragic decisions that looking back on now, we deeply regret. You know, one of the sobering privileges I have of, of being your pastor is that I get to know many of your stories over time. And there are some powerful, redemptive, grace-filled stories in the body here at Calvary. But there's not a lot of straight line stories. They're like, just begin here and just go straight right like that. Mostly crooked line stories. My story and our stories are mostly crooked line stories with twists and turns and zigzags here and there and the other place. No one here has a life story that goes in a straight line. There are more sinners in the room this morning than saints. There are a lot of crooked lines, I'm sure. But what Matthew's genealogy reminds us of is that crooked lines can lead to Christ. Because you see, Matthew's gospel begins not only with this genealogy where he preaches gospel, but in this genealogy is a little theology of God. 
that the God who sent Jesus Christ into the world is a God who is also sovereign. And check it out, who can take our crooked line lives and point them towards a merciful Savior. And we see a God who sent Jesus Christ into the world who is a God who is faithful, who has done this again and again and again in countless lives down through history. We see many of them in this genealogy, and there are many in this room this morning. God has shown himself to be faithful by taking our crooked lives and sovereignly pointing them to Christ. And the God who sent Jesus Christ into the world is also a God who is merciful, and will do this, and indeed delights to do this. No matter how crooked the lines are in our lives. In fact, the more crooked, the better from God's perspective. Because it shows off his sovereignty and his faithfulness and his mercy all the more. And so to turn to him in repentance and faith, allowing him to take control of our lives, he will lead us to Christ and to his healing, forgiving, redeeming grace. So God, you see, is in the business of telling a new story with our lives. Where the crooked lines of our broken lives, lo and behold, sovereignly, mercifully, they lead to the Savior of the world. And where our stories are taken up into God's story and become something beautiful that God is making. And where the story of this fallen world, all bent and contorted because of sin, finds healing and hope in the birth of a baby born in a manger, a baby born of a virgin, a baby whose name is Jesus, who's given that name, as we will see next week, because he forgives his people of their sins. He forgives their crooked line lives, a baby named Jesus, a baby born in a manger whose name is also Emmanuel, God with us. Father, we're thankful that you have drawn near to us through the person of Jesus and his death and resurrection. We're grateful that through the shedding of Jesus' blood, we have the forgiveness that enables us to enter into your presence. You initiated drawing near to us, Emmanuel, God with us. And through the sacrifice of Christ, we can now in repentance and faith draw near to you. We're delighted, Father, that you've set this meal before us this morning as a picture of that, as a picture of your gracious offer to us of Emmanuel, God with us. And the reminder of the sacrifice that's required that we can draw near to you and commune with you through the shedding of of Jesus' blood and the breaking of his body on the cross. And so as we draw near to the table to receive the bread and the cup, would you fill us with a, a sense of awe and wonder at the beauty and the mystery of the incarnation, but also at all of, uh, remind us of all that Jesus has done for us, his life, his death, his resurrection, and indeed even his coming again, his second advent.
to unite us fully and completely one day with you, Father. So be with us now as we draw near to your table, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.